Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, this morning I have a, I have a short story for you as we get going, and we are going to be finishing off uh, Romans. It's been an absolute wonder and a joy for me. I've never gotten to preach through Romans, but it's one of my favorite books of Scripture. This morning, we're going to quickly go through chapter 15 and spend the bulk of our time on chapter 16, but before we get there, I, had, I, I told you I had a short story for you. So how many of you have ever left for work and you just know, nagging in the back of your mind, that you forgot something. All of us, right? We've all done that at least once in our lives, where you just know that there's something you forgot to do. Maybe it was turn the kettle off. Maybe it was you forgot your cell phone on the counter. You forgot your lunch bag. Something. This week, I got up early. I felt great. had a great early morning. Drove to the church, 7 a.m., got a nice early start to my day. And halfway here, I'm driving down Crow Child Trail, and something starts nagging at the back of my mind. I couldn't figure out what it was. What did I forget? I looked around quickly in my vehicle. No, I have my laptop. I have my bag. I even I remembered to bring my lunch, which I never do. Couldn't figure it out. I got to work, looked around, went through my bags. Do I have everything with me? Yep, I have my wallet. Always forget that, but I had that. Couldn't figure it out, and it was driving me crazy. No sooner did I sit down in my office than I got a text message and an email and another email from my neighbor who reminded me that I had forgotten to close my garage door, left it completely open. And I have the absolute blessing. I have a wonderful set of neighbors where my wife and I live. And so I actually was able to have him. He, he asked me, Brendan, do you have the ability to close your garage door from home? I said, you would think the amount of toys and smart accessories and home things that I have, I would be able to do that. But no, I can't close it from home. Can you close it for me? And he was happy to do it. So he actually went into my house, closed my garage door, exited through the front door, which might sound like a small thing until you remember that I have a 90-pound Bernese Mountain Dog at home that probably to most people isn't something that you want to venture in unannounced with. But he went in, he went through the front door, he closed the front door, and then I could close that from my cell phone. And so he closed my garage door for me and it was all good. So that's my story for you. You're probably wondering, what on earth does that have to do with Romans 16? Something. It has something to do with it. We're going to get there right at the end, but I just thought that was a good story to open up with. So good morning to everyone. I'm glad you guys are all here. I'm glad all of you women are here today with us, and I hope that you have been enjoying spending as much time as I have going through and looking and reflecting on the beautiful challenge that Paul sets before us in the book of Romans. I think Paul truly does provide an incredible challenge to the church within the pages of this letter. And as I prepared for this last Sunday, I wanted to take a look specifically at those last two. Romans has a unique ending to it. It's not like the other Pauline epistles, those books or letters that we attribute to the Apostle Paul. Romans is unique. Chapter 15 serves as a traditional closing chapter. 
And again, remember, these are letters being written to individuals, and so as Paul gets to the end of his letter, he writes a closing statement. He has some some trademark pieces to his writing, but then he keeps going, and chapter 16 provides an even more unique look at what Paul is writing to in Romans. In chapter 15, we see that traditional closing to one of the Pauline letters. It contains excerpts focused on summarizing his message. It it has an exaltation to guard the truth. And then it has warnings against, uh, against straying too far from Christ's teaching. Ancient speakers like Paul, when they would write something, they would often summarize or provide this climactic exhortation for the material that preceded it. And so that's what we actually have in Romans chapter 15. If you look through Romans 15, verses 14 through 33, through the end of the chapter, it's actually a reflection of what we find in Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 15. And so what Paul is doing is he's coming back to the very beginning of what he taught, and he's reminding his reader, he's making sure that what he started with, he's circling back on. It's important to him. And the closing that a writer would often use in these types of letters, they would be something very personal, familiar. It included an affectionate tone, something else that's very evident in chapter 15. And then he closes the chapter with, the God of peace be with you, amen. And in that closing, often considered to be a prayer or a blessing that he's conveying to the church in Rome, it is one that is being dramatically addressed to the reader but implicitly calling on God to act. And it's especially relevant to the church in Rome. And the letter could end right there. If you read chapter 15 as a closing statement, it is a beautifully well-constructed closing chapter. Paul has no reason to continue going. He has addressed all the key topics that he wished to communicate. He's given his closing challenge. He's even provided a closing prayer. It's all wrapped up, but he keeps going. And he continues by writing by name in chapter 16, and he talks about the work that they're doing in Christ's name. Because of the close connection between Rome and Corinth, I want you to remind you that Rome and Corinth at that time would have been very close to each other. And so you had people that would travel often between Rome and Corinth. It's one of the reasons why Rome was so large. It's one of the reasons why Paul was in Corinth. And it's also one of the reasons why we believe that Paul is writing to Rome, specifically in this period of time, because there was a large group of believers returning to Rome. In AD 49, the Roman Emperor Clodius actually kicked out every Jewish Christian and Jew from the city, kicked them out. And for five years, they either lived underground in the city or they lived in the surrounding cities or other parts of the empire. They became too much trouble for Clodius, and so he got rid of them as much as he could. But upon his death in AD 54, after his edict had lapsed and because of his death, you had a number of Jews and Jewish Christians returning to Rome. And so Paul is writing to a church that's composition has drastically changed. You have Jewish Christians returning to a Gentile church for the first time in the Roman Empire. And so Paul knows a lot of people. 
Paul was a bit of a big deal. He wrote a lot of letters. He knew a lot of churches. And so he knew a lot of people. And we see that if you look at the first couple verses in chapter 16. Has anyone ever heard the phrase, all roads lead home? Familiar? That comes from the phrase, all roads lead to Rome which is the saying that we actually have written evidence as far back as 1128 AD. And if there's any truth to the hyperbole that all roads lead to Rome, it's probably because Rome built them all. (laughs) Not only that, but the Proverbs origins actually relate to a Roman monument, that Roman monument. It was called the Malarium Ararum, or golden milestone, and it was erected by Emperor Caesar Augustus. It was erected in the central forum in the immediate center of ancient Rome, and it was regarded as the site from which all principal roads diverged. If Rome decided that it was 1,262 kilometers from Rome to Jerusalem, it was from that point that they measured it. So all roads were measured from that spot. It's what helped contribute to Rome becoming the center of that portion of the world, the known world at that time, and the church benefited from it. It's likely the reason why the church was so large in Rome as compared to the other places the disciple adventured. If you go to the next slide, this is what it would have looked like. It would have been a large pillar. It was adorned, it had writing on it, and it was seen as a symbolic representation as the center of the universe. The the Roman emperors had a big deal with being the center of the universe. That's probably what it would have looked like if we could see it today. It was a simple but remarkable monument that pointed people to the center. And so when Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome, Augustus, Augustus Caesar, a couple, uh, a couple years after this, will slaughter hundreds and hundreds of Christians. So keep in mind, you have Christians returning to Rome only for 10, 20 years down the road, having hundreds of them slaughtered and churches destroyed. Rome brought people to it, and it sent them out just as fast. That's why most biblical scholars suggest the names actually mentioned in Romans 16 would have likely been the leaders of various house churches, and those leaders likely would have been the targets for Augustus Caesar as Christians once again became more trouble than they were worth for the empire. But it wasn't just slaves that were prominent. It wasn't just the lowly portions of society that were prominent in the church in Rome. Paul counted as prominent leaders in the church those in the upper echelon of society, and they contributed a great deal to the church. We have in the letter, in Romans 16, when Paul is writing, he he references Erastus, the city treasurer, And it's actually known as the Erastus inscription, something, again, we can still point to today. A Latin inscription was found at Corinth during excavations in 1929 that mentions this individual. 
and the inscription was located along the pavement near the theater in what would have been downtown old ancient Corinth. And it reads, Erastus, in return for his adaleship, paved it at his own expense. Now, why is that important? Well, there's a couple things. John McRae, a noted author, he gives three reasons to actually identify this person with the Erastus mentioned by Paul in Rome, in Romans. One, the pavement was laid around approximately A.D. 50, which would have been about the time that Erastus would have converted to Christianity and around the time that Paul would have had this letter written. The second thing is the name Erastus is incredibly uncommon and hardly otherwise attested to in Corinth. There's almost no records of that name in the city outside of this individual. And three, Paul's word treasurer actually describes the work of a Corinth, uh, a, a dial. And this, is, this, identification, this identification, if correct, which it seems likely, is attesting to the way Christianity reached into the upper classes of society from a very early stage. An Adal uh, was a Corinth treasure. He was responsible for managing the city's infrastructure. And think about this for a second. You had a Christian in the upper echelons of society that paved a road by his own wealth. Pretty incredible achievement. So that is the context in which Rome is, is written. These are the people that Paul is writing to. That is the church that we find ourselves learning from as they are struggling with combining these, these Gentile sects, these Jewish traditions, and trying to figure out what it looks like to build the kingdom. So with that being said, let me invite you to turn to chapter 16, and we're going to jump ahead, and we're going to v- start at verse 17. Paul writes this, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. He goes on to say, For the obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. If we skip ahead to verse 25, Paul finally ends chapter 16 with a doxology. And he says this, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for so long ages, but for now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be the glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. And so, coming out of Romans 16, reflecting on Romans 15, there's only a few words that I want you to take away today. Three words that I want you to remember. Hopefully you remember more than that. I'd be okay with that. But at at a minimum, I want you to remember three words that I think Paul is reflecting on in his chapter, in chapter 16. The first word is greeting. Second is guidance. 
And the third is glory. Those are the three words that Paul is highlighting for us in this final, final, final chapter in Romans. And just a a quick reminder, the word doxology, if any of you remember this, it is an English word that we've carried over directly from the Greek. It's actually made up of two Greek words, doxa, which means glory, and logos, which means words. So in essence, when you see or hear the word doxology, what's being expressed is glory words, or better yet, an expression of glory. That's what a doxology is. And for me, doxologies hold a very special place in my life. Coming from very Mennonite brethren roots, one specific doxology stands above the rest as any time my extended family gathers together, we sing the doxology from whom all blessings flow before every meal. And it becomes a part of our family character. I know for many of you this might be the same. And so doxologies, these expressions of glory, are a remarkable connection to the truth that we find in Scripture. Okay, so let's, let's start with greetings. And I know that some of you are thinking, what in the world is there to see and learn from a whole bunch of names that I didn't even bother to spend the time reading in verses 1 through 16? A bunch of names that I probably didn't read because I can't pronounce them all very well. Well, the reality is there's a lot to learn from Paul's greetings. So, if you're taking notes, get ready. The first one's up there. I want you to notice the names. There are 27 named individuals in these closing verses. More people are greeted, but 27 are specifically identified. And surely we should learn from this that names matter. I wish I could call all of you by name. It's why, as a pastor, what I really enjoy is getting to know people, because I get to know your name, I get to know your story, I get to know how you experience faith, and it becomes an encouragement for me in my faith. Names matter. John 10.3 actually references when he says, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Names matter to God. We should strive to know each other's names because names represent people and knowing people's names indicates that you have a relationship with them that sets you apart from those that you don't. And Paul here, he is working at building relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ an entire city away. And so I think there's something that we can learn here to be like Paul in identifying each other by name. The second thing is, you should notice the, different, uh, notice the different relationships and partnerships. It's remarkable to see the different words that Paul uses to describe these people and their relationship to him and to each other. He uses sister, brother, servant, saints, patron, fellow workers, first fruits, kinsmen, fellow prisoners, beloved, approved, elect. The more that we connect with each other, the more enriching are the ways that we can bring blessing into our lives and to those around us when we don't just use their name, but we identify them by what they mean to us. The third thing is notice how Christ-saturated these relationships are. Verse 2 says, Welcome her in the Lord. 
Verse 3 says, my fellow workers in Christ. Verse 5, the first convert to Christ. Verse 7, they were in Christ before me. Verse 8, my beloved in the Lord. He goes on, my fellow workers in Christ. Appels, who is approved in Christ. Greet those in the Lord. Greet those workers in the Lord. Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Rufus, chosen in the Lord. This isn't a simple list of greetings. This is the way a person who is drenched in Christ talks to another brother or sister in Christ. When you write your family or friends or when you talk on the phone or you send an email, my question to you this morning is, is Christ in your dialogue? Do you reference your faith or their faith? Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If Christ isn't in our speech, and in our emails, and in our telephone conversations, then maybe we have a heart issue that needs to be addressed. And so as a church, we should be drenched with Jesus, like the church that Paul is addressing in Romans 16. Four, notice where the church is located in Rome. Verse five, referring to Prisha and Aquila, says, greet also the church in their house. So we know there's a church In a house, that's good. He gives a generic greeting through the leaders of that church. And then there are all these other names. Look at verse 14. Greet Asinacitrus, Belgon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermes, and the brother who are with them. That probably means that the church that meets with these brothers. Similarly, in verse 15, he says, Greet Philogus, Julia, Nereus and his sister and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Understand, there's probably more groupings in Rome than just the ones that Paul is addressing. We learn that the church in Rome was really churches, plural, in Rome. The church is more than just a single location. The church is more than just Bethany. The church is more than just the church down the street. The church is where any of us are gathered with Christ. Five, notice the most common command to greet. 13 times in 16 verses, Paul tells them, greet so-and-so and and greet so-and-so. Who's he talking to? Well, the introduction in Romans 1.7, if we go back to the very start of the letter, it says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Now, a common refrain I hear as a pastor is, why do we always greet people in the middle of a service? Why do we always stand up and shake hands? It's really awkward. I don't know them. That's kind of the point, right? We're supposed to greet one another. Paul's giving clear direction that we're supposed to greet one another. Why do we do that? Well, we build relationship when we greet one another. Once you've greeted someone and exchanged a name with someone, it's really hard to ignore them. Did you ever notice that? If you know someone's name, it's, it becomes extremely difficult to simply ignore them as an individual because you've established a relationship. And we have such intentionality behind our relationships in the church, or we should. Six, notice the love that permeates this chapter. Four times Paul uses the word loved or beloved. My beloved Ephenatus. 
my beloved, my beloved. This is the language that Paul is intentionally using. And I think we can ask the Lord would take us into a deeper place where we would respond in love with one another, that that would be the language we use in relationship with one another. So those are the greetings. Greetings aren't by mistake. He doesn't write 16 verses just to convey hello. He is communicating truth in relationship. And then he gets to guidance. Paul moves from greetings to guidance. And you might be like, okay, Paul, I get it. Can we just wrap this chapter up? Can you conclude your 16-chapter letter and be done? I get your point. But the fact of the matter is, and you know this to be true, if you've ever lived with a teacher or a pastor, they are always looking for an opportunity to teach. It's also true if you're a parent. You're always looking for an opportunity to teach. And so, as a pastor, I'm going to take this opportunity and teach. You're always looking to offer some direction or guidance. And Paul himself, he can't help himself. He, he takes himself away from the greetings and he goes back to teaching for a very small section. He wants one last opportunity to provide one last instance of guidance, hoping that it just gets the message across. So there's a few things we can learn from his guidance. One, it's possible to go overboard. In verse 17, Paul says, Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. I hesitate even to say it, since I don't think this is the temptation of most churches or most Christians today, but it is possible, and there are churches and people that go overboard. By your laughter, I know that to be true. What I mean is that they become so obsessed with spotting doctrinal error that they lose their ability to rejoice in doctrinal truth. If we become so quick to point out what others are doing wrong, we fail to recognize what we should be doing right. They're like dogs that are trained so completely to sniff out those other dogs or drugs or issues at the airport that they fail to recognize the other things that are going on around them. They're solely focused on one task. It doesn't make for a very welcoming atmosphere when you walk into those places or meet those individuals. So my recommendation or my encouragement to you this morning would be, let's all ask the Lord to help us get the balance right. We have to do this. We have to be on guard against false doctrine, absolutely. We need to guard ourselves against false teaching, but this is not the main thing that we're supposed to do. Vigilance over error is necessary, but joy in the truth should be dominant. Second thing I think Paul is highlighting in his guidance is there is such a thing as a body of doctrine. Don't miss the obvious. There is a body of doctrine that someone can go against. There is a doctrinal standard that we should all learn, that we should all develop in our own understanding and, and, and come to. There is something that we can depart from. Paul refers to it in several ways. In Romans 6.17, he calls it the standard of teaching to which you were committed. In 2 Timothy, he calls it the pattern of sound words and good deposit entrusted to you. In Acts, Paul refers to it as the whole counsel of God. The caution here, of course, is that we must not put every minor opinion in this category so that there's no room for disagreement. 
Remember Romans 14? Covered that a couple weeks ago. As Paul is addressing eating certain foods and celebrating certain holy days, what I believe Paul is referring to here is a faithful summary of biblical events. Biblical essentials. It would include things like the nature and condition of mankind, the nature and work of Christ, the nature and work of the Holy Spirit, the nature and work of God the Father, to name a few. Of course, one of the greatest challenges that we have is deciding what belongs in this body of doctrine. And when you pastor a church, you sometimes find yourself saying something like this from Corinthians. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. At the end of the day, where do we distill our faith to? Where is the place from which we can all grow in connection and relationship with one another? We will all diverge on different paths, but do we have a common ground from which to work? The third thing that I think Paul is highlighting here with his guidance is that false teachers are deceptive and we need to be looking for them. Verse 18 says, By smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. So what is smooth talk? What do you think Paul is referring to here? Well, I think he's referring not to slippery words, but he's referring to pleasant-sounding instruction. The root word for flattery is actually blessing. And so the reason we must be so vigilant over biblical doctrine is because false teachers don't gain a following by being rough or harsh. They gain a following by being really nice. It's rarely popular to resist false teachers in the church because they're almost always perceived as bringing a blessing and speaking with very pleasant words. And Paul says that the innocent are carried away. Hence, his instruction that we should watch out for them and avoid them. False teachers are deceptive. And then Paul gets to glory. Brings us to the last observation in this magnificent epistle, the glory of God. And this, this is where Paul really is bringing his point home through all the doctrine, through all the application, he wants to leave the reader with the understanding that above all, glory, God's glory, is the most important thing. Just before his, his acclamation, his, his final message and prayer of through Jesus Christ, amen, is his acclamation of the greatest fact of all, God's glory. And in order to drive this final observation home, I want to quickly review the many times and ways that Paul actually highlights the glory of God throughout Romans, because this is no mistake. Paul has been doing this for 15 chapters. And although the word glory is not evidenced in chapter 16, I think we need to start with Romans 1.5, because the substance of glory is there. Paul says this, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. That little phrase, for the sake of his name among all nations, is Paul's way of saying that the name of Christ must be glorified above all names. 
and all other persons and all other ideas, above all possessions and all possible dreams. Paul's mission is to glorify God through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in order to offer the good news of Jesus, the nations need to recognize their need for a savior. So Paul begins in Romans 1.21 by addressing the condition of our hearts. And he says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. How did they not glorify him? Well, verse 23 gives the answer. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. And of course, the image most common then, and I would say the image most common today, is not one that we carve out of wood or stone. It is the image that we find every time we look in a mirror. The image that we most often replace God with is ourselves. Then Paul turns to the Jews and he shows them that they're in for a similar condition. The Jews aren't set aside in this. They are just as guilty as the Gentiles. He says in Romans 2.24, For it is written, The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. In other words, you don't glorify God's name either. Paul sums up this condition for all humans in Romans 3.23 with that beautiful definition of sin when he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are created to treasure the glory of God above all things. This means that we have committed an outrageous crime against God because we all fail to do that. It's a far more serious crime than murder or theft or lying. We stand under the wrath of God and we need a savior because of the sin in our lives. The salvation that Jesus brings, delivering us from sin and death and judgment, is received by faith. And Paul illustrates this faith with the case of Abraham in Romans 4.20. And it shows how it relates to the glory of God. He says this, no distrust made between uh, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. In other words, one reason that faith is the way that God saves us is that faith gives glory to God. The fact that we even have a faith and are able to exercise it, that brings faith or that brings glory to God. Then in chapters 5 and 8, Paul shows us that through our salvation, the salvation Christ secures for us, is the hope of the glory of God. This is the ultimate gift of the gospel. Consider Romans 5, 1 to 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And then in Romans 8, 18, Paul says this, hope makes all the sufferings we have to experience in this life worth it. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The glory of God will be so overwhelmingly satisfying that the difficulties of a long illness or a painful death will be nothing in comparison. Then in Romans 8, 21 and 30, he speaks of our sharing in that glory so that we too 
become glorious. That is the ultimate transfiguration of our faith is when we, in connection in heaven with Christ, we will become glorious. We share in God's glory through our faith. He says the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We will finally achieve and obtain what God wanted for us all along. First we are made glorious at the resurrection. Then the whole of creation is made suitable for the glorious children of God. Then as Paul finishes his description of the inscrutable ways of God in dealing with Israel and the nations in Romans 9 to 11, he concludes with this doxology where he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's Romans 11.36. God is the ultimate origin, the ultimate sustaining power, and the ultimate goal of all things, or it should be for those of us that follow Christ. Therefore, all glory belongs to God. And may all praise rise to meet him. Then we get to Romans 15. And as Paul is finishing his handling of how weak and strong Christians should relate to each other, he tells them the purpose of the church and how Christ set the pattern for how the church should be built. The purpose of the church is found in verses 5 to 6 in chapter 15 when Paul writes this. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Displaying the glory of God is the aim of the church. That's why Christ brought you and me to this place, is to bring glory to God and so that others would come to know it. That's why Christ has done what he's done. That's why he has built the church not just as isolated individual people worshiping, but as a collective group of individuals singing glory to God. Then in verse 7, Paul gives Christ as a pattern in chapter 15. He says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Why? For the glory of God. Jesus does everything he does including welcoming you and me into his family. Why? For the glory of God. You are saved by Christ for the glory of God. You are welcomed into his family for the glory of God. This should be humbling because we're never the final reason for anything. God is. Let me say that again. We are never the final reason for anything. God gets the glory and we get the joy. Then verses 8 and 9, Paul underscores this. He underscores Christ's pattern of building the church by showing that it is the very reason he came for the nations. He says, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. 
Which brings us finally back to where we started in the closing doxology of Romans 16, 27. To the only wise God, glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Is that the cry of your heart? Do you love the glory that you bring to God? Or are things in your life getting in the way and preventing God from being the one glorified? It has been a constant struggle in my own life as I routinely place myself as the most important thing and I routinely have to remind myself that it is not for me or by me that anything happens. It is by God's will that things happen and it is for his glory that I do them. It is a hard lesson to repeatedly learn. We are at the end of this four-sermon journey through Romans. And I hope you've enjoyed our time through Paul's epistle. It started out as a one-off, and I have sincerely enjoyed going through and teaching from Romans. But there is so much more than what I've covered through four Sundays. There's so much that Paul has to challenge the church, encourage the church, In fact, today's sermon, honestly, is one that I probably could have easily broken up to into at least five or six separate sermons. But I didn't think you wanted one sermon on just greetings. So I kept going. There's a lot in Romans for us to take away. And so my challenge for all of you, if you've been and if you've heard any of these sermons that we've covered through Romans 12 through 16, is to go back and read it genuinely sit down and begin reading Romans to see what it is that Paul was trying to convey. Because I think if there's anything the church can learn from today, in our culture, in our city, in our struggles, it's the lessons that Paul is trying to communicate to Rome. Because we share a striking number of similarities. There's a couple applications that I want to leave you with today. First is this. Greet your brothers and sisters in Christ. Greet them with love. Greet them with forgiveness, admiration, encouragement, and every aspect of affection Paul speaks of in his letter. Everything Paul has spoken about, how is it that you can use those lessons, those words, in how you communicate and greet your brothers and sisters in Christ? Imagine for a second if we greet each other with more love, affection than we do what would the impact on the church be? Two, allow Christ to guide your path. Where are you taking directions from? Are you forging your own path? Are you, are you asking God to follow you on your journey? Or are you allowing your relationship with Christ to inform your direction? The third thing, if there is anything that we can take from Paul, it is that we should absolutely be gentle with one another in our faith. We need to gently guide others. Confident, absolutely, but gentle. We need to approach each other in love with great affection and seek to build each other up rather than finding ways to tear each other down in our disagreements. We support the kingdom by supporting each other. And that is hard work because it's very easy to disagree with one another. When we enter those places, 
when we find disagreements. In my own life, I have found when I am often disagreeing with someone, it's because I've placed myself as the most important thing in that conversation, not Christ. We need to be gentle with one another. And then four, finally, where do your actions bring glory to God? What things do you need to change in your life in order for God to be glorified? That is a simple question with a very difficult answer. And it's going to be different for every single one of us because our struggles are all different. But that's why we need to be gentle. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we would ask that your directions through Paul truly change our lives. God, I pray that we would understand what Paul is trying to communicate in his letter to the Romans, to those that were leading house churches, to those that were building your kingdom and expanding your message and bringing new believers to you daily. God, what is it that you would have for our church that we could be an example of that? We would be bringing people to you daily. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to BethanyChapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.